Hello and welcome to the World of Cost Players podcast where we discuss old school role playing from a player's perspective. My name is Kel Ronan and I play Davos in the Into the Badlands module. I'm here with... And my name is Cognac and I play Rollin. And I am Cricket and I play Arya. I'm GM Trigvi. I'm once again lurking in the player's podcast. My name's Hel and I'm the guest for this episode. All right, and we do have a special guest. Yep, uh, Hell has introduced herself. And uh, so today we'll be discussing kind of the entirety of Act 1 and try to get an idea of how that module played out, or how the module has played out so far, rather, uh, from a player's perspective as well as how the, we developed it from a DM's perspective as well and get some of those uh, design aspects sort of teased out. Um, you were there, or you, you've listened to our entire podcast so far. Uh, you've been playing D&D for a while. Does it feel like a typical adventure you'd run through so far? Yeah, absolutely. I I've actually have some a bit of interest in potentially playing this in the future once all the details have been hammered out. I don't do a lot of uh, low fantasy settings very often, but this I, I like it quite a bit. Yeah, most of the settings that I've played were... A little bit higher fantasy as well, but I'm really enjoying this first edition uh, setting, this first edition um, game, and specifically this low fantasy setting. As far as games that you've played before, we all know that the tavern meeting is kind of the stereotypical, how do you meet your companions, where do you start your adventure, and how do you think that works for introducing the characters and giving them space to interact with the NPCs and kind of figure out how they interact with the world. So uh, I know it's almost a trope at this point, but personally, I, I don't mind it at all. It's definitely not something you want to do again and again, but considering how important taverns are as meeting places and social spots in the setting itself, I think it just makes sense. And honestly, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, we've... I, oh, go ahead. I got to say, I hate it. I absolutely hate starting in a tavern. It drives me nuts. Uh, but I've been playing for a very long time, so it's just been so overdone. Personally, I find it's it's my least favorite place to start, although for this module it made a lot of sense just given where they were and how important Crossroads Inn is to the whole area, actually. So I relented and I did it there. Every other campaign that I've run, it started somewhere else. So. Yeah, absolutely. And there are so many very cool ways to start campaigns, too. The last campaign I started personally, uh, I actually had all of the characters not knowing each other enter combat immediately, and their very first interaction was combat rather than an extended social, and they actually ended up liking that quite a bit. Very cool. Yeah, I think that um, we started our first campaign together, Cognac, with combat, didn't we? A little bit of a stab between us, even. Well, I think that might have been just like a test that we were running at first to understand the mechanics behind how we were playing. Right, DM? That's right. So it took you through a mock combat where you actually all your players, your player characters fought each other just to see how it would go, which was a huge mistake on my part because it set up a lot of inter-party conflict from just a test session that wasn't even canon, right? It wasn't even something that actually happened. But the Danger in Darkwood campaign, you all started in basically a mercenary camp, just kind of hanging out, waiting for some you know, high and mighty people to give you orders. And then it all sort of spun out of control from there. And then 
Cricket and I started in the middle of a woods, basically next to a camp, which is almost, well, it's not really near, nearly a tavern equivalent, but we kind of stumbled all upon each other there. Yep, uh, basically a campfire in the woods. Uh, a, basically a semi-pirate ship that gets trashed by uh, a bigger pirate ship, and then you crash land on the shore in, in icy north. Um, yeah, we've, we've been all over the map on where we started. And I like that. It's it's good to start that way. I mean, one starts in a mage school, and the other one, uh, I have to admit, the uh, silly campaign is just basically a dungeon hack and slash is in a warehouse slash in. So I use that over again. But <laughs> so, what do you normally do for campaign introductions then, Hell? Well, I don't have a like go-to introduction. I usually try to tailor it to whatever the players uh, I think will motivate them. If I've got players who are like very idealistic and focused on that, it'll probably be something more heroic. If they're less heroic, it'll usually be something like the draw of money or a bounty or something like that. I, I try to keep it varied because like the uh, Trigby is saying, if you do the same thing over and over again, it's just going to wear down. Oh, yes. I've been lucky enough to not start in a tavern so often, but I think that sometimes it helps just to, I guess, introduce a little bit of a, a ability to interact with somebody early in the campaign or figure out how you interact with other people um, and your characters interact with other NPCs. But we went from... From the introduction in a tavern and interacting with NPCs to about four days of you know travel from the group's perspective, it was it wasn't that long in the actual game. Um, we had a little bit of a hobgoblin cleanup in there, but basically we were running around trying to get north as fast as possible before we went into a big conflict, which was do we help out people on our way north or do we? Just try to get these assassins as quickly as possible. How do you think that went from sort of a campaign perspective, introducing conflict, the central conflict of Act 1, which was how do we balance out getting north and, and actually doing what we feel our calling is? Yeah, I, I really like it a lot. I think it makes uh, total sense to have that sort of real test of the uh, party's resolve and like where do their real ideals versus their goals lie. It, it makes a lot of sense. It was really interesting, especially, like you said, a lot of it being social. And it puts like this very more dangerous feel into the campaign. So I liked it a lot, and it really showed the audience, like where do each of these characters, like, ideas and motivations lie. Yeah, my character was a bit torn about it as well. It was really mostly fixed by Arya, uh, Cricket's character. How did you feel being kind of put into that position? Me as Arya? Yes. Well, um, that was an interesting thing because me as a human being very much wanted to do that. And so me as the player influenced, I guess, my character more than probably she should have, and thereby influencing you, Davos. <laughs> um, so, I, I don't know, I, I guess 
There was more conflict, like I said, between um, me as a person and then what my what my character would be. And then I thought, too, that everybody else in the party would feel the same way I did. And so it was, um, I was actually taken aback that the Vith people didn't want to stay and help. Is that what you're asking me? I think that's what you're asking me, right? Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. How did you feel when, when you were confronted with that conflict? Yeah, pretty much. And then, Pontiac, how do you feel that went from a conflict introduction perspective? I think I think that's okay. Like, you, you said not having, um, just going right into, like, fighting. Well, I think that's okay. I really do. Um, I I don't mind it so much. I think that we do a pretty healthy balance of conflict and non-conflict, you know. And you guys were talking about starting in bars as being a common trope, but being a newer player, I find it incredibly helpful because you get to learn these characters immediately. Um, whereas some of our other campaigns, we start in a variety of settings, and, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly who we're playing with, you know, so... And, and it's been really easy for me to align with uh, Rollin in this campaign. I, I'm finding that, you know, Rollin's kind of on the same page as Arya. Yeah, we're both good. I mean, I actually don't think, I don't even know if your character's really good or not, but our intentions seem to be pretty pure with what we're doing. Um, and and I think that Arya can be pretty um, selfless. So... I know that Rollin kind of um, admires that quality in a lot of her actions. She's doing things to help nature and, and to help people, too, you know, when they're not being jerks. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, just to tack onto this, I feel like it, it makes a lot of sense to be playing a character that where your own personal values align really closely with the character. That makes it a lot easier makes it easier to RP. Uh, but that's actually why uh, Davos is my favorite character so far. <laughs> I actually really like it because it, it is difficult to RP a character whose morals and ideas might not perfectly align with yours and might even be kind of a jerk sometimes. And you, you, it doesn't always feel good, but like that's such good RP too, though. Thank you. I would say most of the characters being played by the players don't really align right now to, to who they are as people. I, I think, Cognac, you're generally nice. I think Rowan's generally nice, but you're also not very religious, and she is, and the whole elven values and everything else, it's all new to you, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I actually feel I, like I'm a lot more comfortable playing more selfish characters. Uh, I don't know if that, what that says about me as a person, but <laughs> I, I I like playing those. Um, I my first character Nessa was a um, an evil person who had to kind of balance that with uh, the the teamwork and aspects that go along with D and D. But I really loved playing that character. So playing good characters is hard for me because when I'm in a campaign and and there is a group of people that need help on the side of the road, I. I don't want to stop and like help these people. I want to do the fun thing, which is to go smash the brains out of more goblins. So I'm actually kind of struggling with playing good. Um, and I know Cricket's characters are often good. I think probably in real life she's a saint. So I, I'm trying to kind of follow her lead in that and learn how to play a good character. Yeah. 
And in first edition D&D, Cricket's character, Arya, has to be true neutral. She has to find balance in all things. The alignment system in first edition is far more rigorous. For example, Gregora has to be lawful good, and a very specific lawful good, because she's a paladin. So it's far more restricting, and it forces a certain type of roleplay. So, uh, yeah, it can be very challenging. And I think the two of us, Gregora and our, or, you know, these two players, I think have um, actually had more leeway in that way. And the players, you know, both Exploding Kitten and I, you know, are putting our own personal, I guess, stain on our characters because it would, it would be difficult for me to play Lawful Good. No, you're pretty much Lawful Good. Well, well. <laughs> well, I think I think I don't know. Of... I I don't think that because because Arya doesn't really seem to ca- care about following the rules per se. Or oh, Arya, at least Arya, Arya is not lawful good. Um, Cricket, Cricket seems lo- to want to do good no matter what the rules are. If the rules are saying, "Hey, we have yeah, to go torture true. this person into oblivion," she's not going to do that. That is true. You do, you do hate traffic rules of all sorts and types, so I would say maybe more neutral good. But, yeah. Speaking of Arya being such a good person, she keeps picking up animals and caring for them and making them into animal companions uh, sort of as, as uh, out of the goodness of her heart to make sure that they're safe and cared for and the party doesn't kill them also. But what do you think that that benefit of companions like this are to the story and to party unity for that matter um i i think they're actually really important for this campaign i think it makes it much more entertaining um seeing the 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 kind of chaos that comes with animals and then also it's really really having to keep aria on her feet because she has to pay attention not only to what her actions are but the actions of her animals and how to take care of them and earn their respect every day i like it yeah, and I will say that that frog thing, uh, the DM kept me on my toes, particularly for that one, because I did not anticipate that um, Holly Berry would continue to um, try and eat those, those frogs. And that was very unsettling to me after I told them to, to flee. They fled, but Holly Berry, you know, just, uh, yeah, turned that all up on its head and... Yeah, we ended up having to kill... Did we end up killing all of them? I think we did. Yep. Yep, we killed all of them. And and I think Cricket here is rep, um, it's talking about something from Act 2, which is uh, we ran into some frogs and they, they uh, tried to eat some of the party members. So Arya told them to run away um, after we scared them. And her giant weasel uh, went off and said, well, I have some food, so I'm going to take care of the food. But, yeah, so what are some experiences that you've had, Hal, with, say, animal companions acting the way in parties? and in? Uh, animal companions are usually a mixed bag from my experience. You guys are absolutely right. They can add, definitely add to the story and party unity, and they can be a wonderful boon if everybody is in the same uh, camp and all, everybody all loves them. Unfortunately, I have had campaigns in the past, though, where the party just keeps on getting more and more companions, and which add more and more to the combat, to the tokens, more actions being used, more to keep track of. The DM is constantly 
like, okay, who is doing what with where, and where is this animal, and where is this construct, and where, uh, so on and so forth, which, so I've had both really good and bad experiences. Fortunately, Trigby's being a veteran DM handles it really well and makes the companions very flavorful and even adds to the drama with them, such as uh, when Holly Berry uh, was, like, going to go after those hunters because they were holding deers thinking, oh, the deer is food for me, making an already potentially tense situation even more tense. But it's one of those things where I, I have had uh, parties get really sick of all of the companions and whatnot. So uh, mixed, definitely mixed. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. But it's fun. Yeah, I think that, I think, from a player's perspective, it helps get the loosen the tension a little bit, but also can be used to heighten the tension in any particular situation. Having uh, just animals that you run into, uh, having your <laughs> your druid in this case just be absolutely willing to take them on as companions and take them with them is somewhat. Uh, and the DM being amenable to that is somewhat rare uh, in any campaign that I've had. And uh, well, you, you don't have a choice at first edition. Druids are incredibly weak characters, but they're situationally strong. And one of the ways they're strong is the ability to speak with animals, befriend them, utilize them. You know, they shouldn't use and abuse. But Arya's character is not great in combat. Is less of a healer than Davos. Is, has leather armor and you know a bone sickle and an orc staff and she's got nine strength with very little ability in combat without these she's almost I wouldn't say unimportant but she has far less of an impact on the party now when she gets to higher level it changes but getting there it's kind of like first edition magic users one spell per day and you're done no cantrips no mage hands none of the 5e stuff right one spell and that spell could be like Featherfall or, I don't know, Read Magic. So yeah, Arya as a druid, until she gets to about level 7, is going to be still pretty weak. Her animal companions are a huge part of who she is. Yeah, so did you have to put in design considerations when designing the module? Or did you just decide to add in these characters as you were going? So fortunately, the old school DD manuals do that for me. So in a swamp, there's certain things that can be encountered, and there's a whole big long list. Now, I tend to make that list a little more mundane because we're in a low magic campaign. So even the fact that you guys have met a druid is a rarity, right? But yeah, the, the weasel was a random encounter, just like the frogs were in Act 2. So now Bloodbeak was something that, you know, you can buy a hawk. I just made it kind of a, a little better of a hawk, thinking that if she has nothing else, Arya's at least got this hawk companion to start out with. But, um, yeah, it's, it's all basically random encounters, and it just worked out. Now, Arya has to still do her job, too. She has to have food specific to the creature to, you know, befriend it. It's not just cast a spell and you're done. She has to create a scenario under which that creature will trust her to get close enough to give it food to initiate the spells. So there's a whole process you have to follow. And first edition spells are brutal. They're designed to be incredibly powerful, but also incredibly difficult to cast. So it all sort of factors in. Yeah, and hearing that too, I would definitely like to compliment Cricket because 
her getting both of those companions and befriending them and training them has all worked out very smoothly, too. Well, thank you, because it didn't feel that way to me. So thank you. I appreciate that. I just got to say, just wait till Act 2. <laughs> it's, all gonna, yep, it's all going to be, uh, well, like, like you said, they are chaos in, in a game. So, so we've had a number, chaos, but chaos. Yep. We've had a number of side quests, because partially you know, spurred on a little bit by our character's greed or the need to take care of people in Arya's case or, you know, the, this evil that we found underneath the, um, <laughs> this evil place that we found underneath a farmhouse. How did it, these seemed somewhat off track for, and some of the party didn't want to do them. How do campaigns you've been in integrate these side quests and adventures? And this is more of a question for Hell, but I'm sure everybody can chime in on this. Well, Usually, I haven't run into this problem too many times because maybe it's just the players I've been playing with, but if there is a, a, a quest and they have a limited time frame to do it, most of the players that I have been playing with, particularly if there's a big reward involved, they will very single-mindedly say, no side quests, we are going straight for the goal. So maybe that's just the people I've been playing with, but I was actually kind of uh, shocked to see how like easily swayed at least a uh, few members of the party were to doing these side quests, even if it meant abandoning the main goal, which uh, the way that it was set up seemed to be like, there seems to be like a very tight timeline, but maybe that's just my uh, interpretation of it. And there was initially, and everyone was sort of thinking, we have to get north, we have to get north, they're going to escape. The fact of the matter is, when you do the interlude between Act 1 and Act 2, they've already escaped. The assassins have already made their way north. They've gotten to their camp in the Badlands. They're likely going to stay there for a period of time. They've already escaped. What we have in Act 2 is the players now know where the assassins are, even though they've escaped the kingdom, so they have some time to go get them. But you're right, in Act 1, there was this definite time crunch. But Cognac loves to do side quests, so I can always rely on her to, uh, to push the party to go down any single rabbit hole I reveal, so it's kind of wonderful in that regard. Oh yeah, that's my favorite. I think that's what makes the campaign fun. Yeah, because um, you always, I, I think that we find some of the coolest magical items we we've ever found on just doing little side quests. Um, and having random magical items in the group always makes things fun, so uh, I'm a big advocate for side quests. Yeah, absolutely, and I totally agree, too. Side quests can be really flavorful. I just, as a DM, I'm not really sure how I would uh, handle the idea of if you're going to have a timed side quest, uh, or main quest, and then the party has decided instead to then kind of just wander off and do their own thing and not really pay attention to it. Like, what kind of consequences would you have from there? Because I'm not really sure about that. So I can say this now since the party's already passed it. Had they kept the horses, abandoned the silver scales, ridden north with full speed in full pursuit of the assassins, not sparing the animals, which Arya wouldn't have liked, um, risking having the horses in the swamp, which there's all kinds of problems there, they actually could have caught the assassins at 
the watch at the Frontier watch. So that was always a possibility. Now, because they weren't able to do that, the party has to go into the Badlands. So because they didn't do everything possible to pursue at full speed, um, even joining a silver scale slowed them down. If they had left that night from the inn, got some horses and said, screw it, we're going, riding through the night, moving forward, they could have caught them. But they didn't. So now it's a matter of finding their camp. The, the whole thing under the farmhouse, if they chose to do that, and if they came through that with the lore and the items and everything else, it gives them an opportunity to address the main quest in a different way, just like saving the commoners did. So by choosing to do the things that they did, they now have additional branches through which they can move the party to potentially achieve victory towards the end. And I like to create scenarios that have sort of moral decisions there. And, and choices that they make, whether it's a side quest or not, has some kind of down-level implication. Maybe it's just a little bit more flavor, but maybe it's a whole other way to solve what they need to solve. Well, as a DM, I like that. And, and I don't think that everyone in the group, their primary objective is just, we have to figure out, find these assassins either. That might right. be the, 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 the group plan or the reason why we say we're all here, but in the end, does Neris and Aria, like, is it their heart's greatest desire is to go find these assassin or do they have some other reasons they might be here too so um it's we don't have a lot of reason to go rush for it other than davos saying we don't have time for this we don't have time for this which as you've seen we can uh find reasons to um not listen to him <laughs> or to convince him in, in the case yeah. of the evil in the forest or the the yep. um, farmhouse but the rest of it yeah it was really difficult to convince him or yeah, just say absolutely. fuck them. <laughs> or just say forget about them. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is pretty amusing seeing Davos kind of have to try to struggle with, yeah, I'm the leader, but am I? <laughs> 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 uh, so going back to what you were saying, though, Trigby, I, I think that's really interesting. So the way you're uh, doing side quests is less uh, this is a almost a side quest as in at least when I use the term side quest, I'm thinking this is a side objective that would usually dead end, and they would get a cool reward, but this is mostly just a break up from whatever it is they're pursuing. You are actually treating the side quest as less of a different thing for them to be doing and more of a branching path for them to potentially open up more opportunities then. If they follow to conclusion, if they went to the if they went down into, under the farmhouse and they killed a couple of skeletons and like this is stupid we're leaving, then it was a side quest where they killed a couple of skeletons, got maybe a bone knife or some information and left. But they cleared it. They got to the end. They got the axe and the sacrificial knife, and those are potentially important artifacts that give them some other options later on. So it depends on the players. I actually don't do a lot of this beforehand. I have rough outline. Because I'm not going to design a whole side quest only to have, you know, Davos say, nope, we're not doing it. And then, you know, I've spent 20 hours working on something and I get to cry a DM tear behind the screen that nobody sees. Uh, so I try and keep it pretty light. But if they double down and, like, Cognac is like, nope, we're doing this. And Arya's like, yep, let's save the people. Well, then I'll have something ready to go and it becomes a thing. So Yeah, and I think we all really appreciate the flexibility that you present with all of your... Uh well, you don't give me a choice. You guys have done some absolutely crazy things in the past. 
I mean, you you murdered a player in the first campaign because the player the player killed your lover, or you you thought maybe the player killed your former lover. So yeah, you stabbed him right in the back with a short sword, and he died. And then you had to do things. But anyway, so yeah, that creates a whole new whole new campaign, and in, in fact, to some degree. So yeah, it's fun stuff. Keeps me on my toes. Yeah, actually, interesting thing is we we had to play with. A smaller number of players for a bit, and I think um, I think that made it kind of difficult to play with. Uh, with just how many players did we have? How many characters did we have for that? For which one? Uh, just just for that time span where we had only I think four players who were playing at that time, or who had characters effectively. Everybody else wasn't available or wasn't able to play because their characters had were chained up or dead. Yeah, I don't recall specifically, but you do raise kind of an interesting question. What's the optimal number? And I got to say, I love seven or eight around a table. It's perfect. Around a table, you can see body language. You can look at faces. You can laugh. You can have a drink. For roll 20, five to six is the best I can do. More than that, people start getting marginalized. The first campaign was seven, and it was so hard to keep everybody engaged. Yeah, that was actually uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was... uh, what did you make this particular module for? What did you balance it for? And what are your preferences for uh, party size? So around a table, like I said, seven or eight, this module is balanced for six or seven. There's actually a, another pregen character. is a magic user, uh, a diviner actually, specializing in finding things, which would be useful, obviously, that no one opted to play. So the only actual magic user is Rowan, actually, as a multi-class. So there was seven characters designed, but since we're COVID-19, and honestly, none of us had time as adults to get together every week around a table for three hours. The internet's just the way to go now. So best I think I can do is five to six. And even six, you know, I feel guilty at the end of each session where someone gets marginalized because it's just so hard to have everyone role play and, and participate. Combat's easier because everybody gets a turn, but as try as I might, I can't figure out a way to break fluid RP into, okay, it's your turn now, okay, it's your turn now, and oh, Aria hasn't spoken in, you know, five minutes, let's give Aria a chance to RP. It, it doesn't work that way, right? It's not fluid, so I'd say five or six in, in Roll20 or an online tool is best, but the best you can do. Yeah, and as a junior uh, dungeon master, personally, uh, bigger party sizes are somewhat more intimidating, so I, <laughs> I have been uh, kind of trying to figure out where exactly I would prefer uh, to have party sizes at, because everybody wants to have a bunch of people having fun, but it can be really hard to juggle that many people, too, though. Yeah, if you're sitting around with eight people at a table, you're playing for four to six hours. You're making a day of it. Um, and then everybody gets the time. You, you have dinner in between. You break up the session. We actually did that once in the previous campaign. There were seven of us, and two were still remote. We all met at a friend's house, and that was a fun session. I think you remember that, right, Cognac? Oh, yeah, I love that. That was great. Um, it's nice. It's a just completely different game for me. I mean, I, I play primarily all online with you guys. I've never really done a lot in person. And, yeah, the body language changes. The excitement over rolling is pretty fun, too, which is why it's great having Roll20, being able to interact with people and see their roles in real time. It's exciting for me, at least. You know, you, if, you get, uh, if you get a critical fail, 
that is um, a lot of fun seeing people's faces um, when you when you get that, you know. Indeed. So, yeah. Yeah. So this is cricket. I I think um, on roll twenty, I think our campaign has too many characters. I think it is. I think we are struggling. You know, and you know from uh, game to game. Um, you know, uh, focuses shift, and uh, yeah, it's it's easy for um, certain characters to be marginalized, and and I don't know. I, I guess if you're okay with that as a player, you know, then that's fine. But um, I would I would think four to f I would think at most we want five, but that's just me. It's particularly bad when you have some strong role players. And I got to say, you know, Elizabeth Mustard and Calronin are two very strong role players. And then Cognac, when you get into your character, you're also a very strong role player, as are you, Arya. So it's easy, for example, say, say the session where you got Hollyberry, right? That was kind of Arya's moment to get this new companion, to tell Neris to calm down, don't kill my new thing. Rowan, you magic missiled it. That's horrible. It's now mad at you. You had this whole interaction, right? It was all about you for a while. And then this last one we did in Act 2, it was less about you. And as long as as a player you're okay with that, then we can balance it out between sessions. Part of the problem, too, is we're targeting for about two hours. And you got to figure with combat plus role play plus dialogue, two hours split between six people, that's not a lot of air time for each of them. So in two hours, you might get 15 minutes, and that's it. So it's tough. But I'm doing the best I can to balance it. I, I think you're right. It, five is probably the sweet spot, but with conscientious players, I think six is okay. Maybe even seven. We did seven with Darkwood Six, but it was, it was pushing it. We had a couple of players who barely said anything all session, and that's not good. So. Well, and I think we have some of that... Even here and now, um, I, I feel like, yeah, we have some of that even now in, 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 our, in our campaign. And I, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I can't help but think that it, if we had fewer players, there wouldn't be that gap. And I think part of it is, too, is, is because we are um, putting this out on the Internet and because we are... Um, I, I guess have it in our heads that other people could be listening to this, that that kind of plays a factor in our, um, I don't know, in our psyche and how we're playing too. It doesn't change it for me, but your, your point's well taken. Now, I will say it's up to me as DM to, to moderate this. And if someone's getting neglected as a player, that's, that's for me to fix. So it's good feedback. Uh, I'll definitely keep working on it. Yeah, I just think, you know, it's just the nature of the beast that that will just continue to happen. But. I think, yeah, I think you're right. It does. It, it will continue to happen. It's a matter of what players you have around the table to a certain extent and how those players interact with their characters as well. Um, and a turn, from a certain perspective, it's partially about role-playing, right? Mm -hmm. so. Well, right, and I struggle sometimes to get a word in edgewise and, and not... Well, in the beginning, it was, I don't even know what to say. And then by the time I said it, we moved on. And then, you know, now it's, you know, I feel more comfortable. And sometimes it is hard for me to word in edgewise. And we're kind of talking over each other sometimes. And it's like, ah, well, okay. And that happens even when you're in person, no matter how big of a, well, 
yeah, no matter how big of a group you have, but you don't want to have like super empty spaces. Um, I, I think we need to do what we do in, honestly, corporate meetings. In teams, you raise your hand if you have something to contribute, or they can see your body language and you lean forward. I mean, we got to do the best we can with the tools we have, but uh, I, it, it pains me a little bit to hear that some of the players have things they want to contribute and they can't because others are talking over them or they're just excited to, to be contributing themselves. I don't think anybody means to um, prevent somebody from talking, but we need, as a group collectively, we need to do a little bit better, and it's my job to coach that. So I hear you, Cricket, and I know it's been something we've talked about for a while now. I need to keep working on it. I'll, I'll do better. I'd actually like to hand over the um, some of the questions to our guest. Um, I know that she had a few questions for us. Yeah, absolutely. This actually leads me into uh, one of my questions that I had for you pretty well is you talked about party unity quite a bit and a couple of the sessions, particularly in the meet, uh, middle of uh, Act 1, uh, a lot of the characters were arguing pretty heavily and uh, talking over each other and like whatnot. And like, how, how do you try to normally handle that and try to guide them? Well, I'll answer this really quick. I try to let the players do it. Uh, ultimately, it has to come from RP. It's got to be... I'm, my sincere hope is that all my players actually want to play with, with each other. So regardless of what their character's motivations might be, they'll find some kind of RP excuse to make it work. doesn't always happen. Sometimes things are set up to be more adversarial. But, but generally, I like the players to figure fix that and work through that. I will sometimes shut it down if it goes too far, but I hate doing that as a DM, but I will if I have to. All right, great. And then uh, another thing is, as I was watching through the campaign, the beginning of the Act 1 was extremely social heavy and was really good for all the characters introducing each other. And then uh, Throughout the campaign, I noticed, uh, especially towards the end, it got extremely combat encounter heavy. Uh, how do you balance that? I'd like the players to answer this one, but I'll just say that I think it's up to the players. Every single scenario I create has, likely has a combat or a non-combat solution. And maybe the non-combat solution is not necessarily RP, maybe it's a way to avoid combat, but I like to think I give players options. I will say that if combat is an option, my players do tend to jump at it, but I'd like to hear from, from Aria, Cognac, and, sorry, from Cricket, Cognac, and, and Cal Ronan. What do you guys think of the balance between RP and combat? Well, I think it's changed a little bit, partially because of what we were talking about with Party Unity, just because the way that our characters were interacting sort of led well into us uh, getting into combat, somewhat as a way of relieving stress. And I think from an RP perspective, Getting into combat blows off steam. Cognac? Cricket? Well, um, I find that it seems like a lot of the times we'll just have like one or two characters that, for some reason, in their backstory or how they are, they just don't want to follow along with the group, and that's okay. We just need to find um, kind of reasons to, or a way to convince them to stay with us. And I like that. I think that's kind of a challenge, um, especially after one of our previous campaigns where we had a lot of party infighting. It was kind of a more stressful political position. I'm just trying my best to make, make sure that doesn't happen again. We do whatever we can to stick together. Some things my characters will kind of uh, be more 
headstrong about. Like, for instance, when Arya and I really wanted to help the the people that were hurt, we we stuck to that, and and honestly, I think it worked out good. I think it made us stay true to our characters. So that was good. But yeah, infighting's not fun. So we just do our best to try to stay together. Um, and then I think we were talking about like the mix of of um, fighting and the mix of you know social. I, I I think it's always a choice for us. We like like said, we have the option to um, to fight or we can try to talk to people. And we often take the the um, the route of fighting people, but. I'm working with my characters at least more to explore those other options, paying paying off enemies, talking to them, convincing them, and it's getting a lot better with Arya having the special skill where she can um, make people charm them or make them her friend. Uh, so that's kind of a fun thing we're exploring, I think. Um, so this is only, what, the third campaign I've ever been in. I've only been in campaigns with uh, Trigvi, and so um, I, and I've always played a fighter, and so I always thought that that's what I'm just supposed to do, I'm supposed to go in and fight. So being a druid, one has um, made a difference because I'm exploring other ways to um, maybe not get us into a fight um, and not um, be murder hobos. And, and I also, just recently NPR had on a little segment on D&D and how it's becoming such a big deal, more popular in, um, in, in times of COVID. And they, they had a, a DM on and, and a, a player, and they were talking about how they actually, some of their tactics for not getting into fights. And I'm like, holy cow, people actually avoid fights? So that was kind of eye-opening for me. But on the other hand, I think it is good for us to get into fights because that is when some of that party unity comes into play because we are trying to do things to make the group as a whole successful. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's a, it is a good balance. I think you do need um, quite a bit of, of, of combat too because um, that also creates that party unity in my, in my opinion. And that has been the case with this campaign for sure. I will say that because of choices made in Act 1 and partially through Act 2, Act 3, 4, and 5 are going to be pretty combat heavy. There'll still be a, a lot of chances to RP, but you guys are heading into a bit of a war zone the moment you go into the Badlands, so just get ready for it. There'll be a lot more combat than we've seen thus far. So, Very cool. And uh, I've always personally really loved uh, social social encounters, though, again, depending on what the uh, players choose, any social <laughs> interaction could easily become a combat interaction. But uh, do you think that 1E lends itself more strongly to co combat encounters then? Do you think that might influence you like that? No, the opposite, actually. In 5e, you're kind of a superhero, so uh, your chance to hit something, say, a level higher than you is about 50%, give or take. In 1e, it's completely different. Um, you can be killed by a goblin at level 5. Uh, it, it, you don't have the same survivability. So if you think about someone who's had a character, who's played that character for, say, a year, and that character is now level 3, um, which is not unreasonable for the AD&D first edition. A single arrow can still take you out. So you really don't want to fight unless fighting is the only way to achieve your goals. Fighting is incredible.
incredibly dangerous in first edition. Uh, we don't see that very much here because the characters are a little higher level in this campaign. They all started at between three to four to five, depending on uh, their their classes. But but even so, you know, we've had characters who've gone down to zero and been at death's door just from bad dice rolls. First edition D&D is far more lethal than uh, than more modern versions. So avoiding fights is smart. Right. Very interesting. Cool. I think we have time for a couple more questions, and we probably need to, to call it, right, Kelly? Yep, we need to, yep. So, unfortunately, I don't know if we'll be able to get through that. Which ones do you want to go through now? I, I just, most of them we went over pretty thoroughly, either in passing or just kind of overlap. But there is one more uh, for G, uh, GM Trigby. Uh, as someone who's never played first edition and mostly played the, like, 3.5 and 5e. Uh, some of, I've got to say, I <laughs> first edition is a little bit overwhelming. It's not as intuitive as a lot of the uh, RPGs I've played before. Um, some of the roles you want to get low, some of the roles you want to get high. Critical success is a 20 or a 1. And the idea of combat segments, while you are saying is very... Uh, tactical and very, very interesting, it sounds like it's a lot to keep track of. For any new DMs and players who would want to try to get into 1E, is there any tools you would recommend? Anything you would suggest to them to try to tackle 1E in its slightly more complicated system, particularly for combat? So, I do most of this in my head. It's just kind of second nature because I've been doing this for a while. And you get there pretty quick. You'd be surprised actually how simple it is once you understand the basic rules. And keep in mind, we're actually not playing pure 1E either. I, we're supposed to do declare actions. We started that way. Players hate it, so I stop using that rule. So it's a little customized just because I listen to my players, and when they rebel against an idea, I tend to cave a little bit. But uh, I would say... Dragonsfoot.org is a pretty good old-school role-playing um, role-playing game forum. They have some tools and tricks on there. Um, if you ever decide to DM a first edition campaign, I can take you through a couple of things I do. A couple, I use scrap pieces of paper. I use index cards for a few things. But I'd be curious. I, from a player's perspective, I don't know. I kind of just lead everybody through it. I'd ask Cricket, um, Cognac, and Caronan. You asked if there's tricks for players. Uh, you guys tell me. Well, for me, I just try to keep track of where people are in the in the combat. It's really tricky when the enemy and the party both roll the same number for initiative because then it's completely based on dex, and I don't know what the enemy's dex is. So <laughs> that's, that's a little bit troublesome. Um, I try to keep people's uh, combat order on a little slip of paper next to my computer so I can just be able to check... I, I literally just check them off to see who went and uh, try to keep that in mind. Yeah, so inside a, a party initiative role, it does go by decks, and if there's a couple of rules for that. But it actually, if you have simultaneous initiative, the hardcore rule is to use weapon speed. You're also supposed to use that for dueling. So there's a whole bunch of attributes and stats in AD&D that you could use, and there's rules for that. But... Um, yeah, Cricket and and Cognac, any thoughts on understanding combat and what makes it easier for you guys to process? Um, 
I I don't know. I'm I'm always like a little com- confused during combat, so I just kind of you know just roll with it. Whatever's happening, I take it in stride and just uh, magic missile everything. That's the that's the hard and fast rule there. No. <laughs> I I mean I've only played uh, advanced Dungeons and Dragons twenty, so I'm I'm pretty comfortable with this now. Cricket. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I would say this campaign uh, uh, combat has been the most challenging for me because. Um, most of the time I'm scrolling through and I'm trying to figure out what I can do with the, the giant list of spells that I have. Um, so it's been far more complicated. But um, before that, you know, I, I was usually just a fighter, so it was, it was pretty easy, you know. I just start hitting things. Um, but, yeah, uh, this has um, made me have to be far more dynamic. And, you know, before I didn't have little pieces of paper and... I'm starting to use a little piece of paper now. But yeah, I, I don't mm-hmm. think I have tips and tricks for, for combat necessarily. Um, I guess I am looking for those tips and tricks personally. All right. So, so Hel, let me give you... So I'm hearing my players also want this. So now I feel like I need to go through this. But let me give you a, a one-minute answer, and then we'll, we'll I, guess, I guess we'll call it because we're a little bit late. But So AD&D combat is very, very tactical, and the, the thing is, if you understand the system, you can work within it to do really, really well, or you can just sort of float through it and, and still be very, very effective. There's rules like, for example, if you have an arrow knocked, you can release that arrow before anybody else takes an action, because literally it's half a second to fire that or less, right? So all of the rules in AD&D combat sort of stem from the sort of tactical practical application of what a fight would be like. The hardest thing to understand, though, is that a combat round's one minute. So you get to take one action in one minute. Now, it seems crazy, right? But the concept behind AD&D is during that minute, you're blocking, you're parrying, you're dodging, you're moving left and right, you're trying to avoid getting hit, you're looking to where your friends are. A bunch of chaotic stuff happens in that minute, and you're able to take one solid action, your one attack, your one attempt to do something. Um, you know, if you need to draw your bow and get an arrow, that happens maybe towards the beginning of that minute. Um, the, uh, the actual firing of that bow might happen towards the end of that minute, but it's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the combat round. And then the combat round is broken down into segments, 10 segments. An initiative is rolled. You can do it per person, but the st- standard rule is per party. So the enemy goes on one segment, and then the party goes on the other. And you cross-roll. So the party rolls for the enemy, and the DM rolls for the party. So if the party is going on, say, they get a 6d6 roll of segment 4. 24 seconds into that combat round, the party takes action. Now, Udo, Neris, and Arya, and even Rowan, they have higher dexterity, so they're a little faster than that right? So even on a simultaneous initiative, those with higher dexterity get to move first because they're agile, they're quick, and all these rules kind of flow in. It is complicated. So if you ever decide to do it, I got a cheat sheet I can give you. Again, I've been doing it for a long time, um, but you need to understand, for example, that if, say, Arya casts a spell on segment three or segment one, and the spell has a four-segment casting time, it doesn't go off until segment five. So when Arya decides to cast a spell, she has to take into account how long it takes to cast that spell. It's not instantaneous. So that might put her before the enemy attacks or might put her after. So she has to make a tactical choice there. Does it make sense for her to be vulnerable for those 24 seconds while she weaves that spell and that spell takes effect? 
or is she going to get brained in the meantime so she can't risk doing that and she has to you know decide what she wants to do so and that single player choice can make the difference between a dead character and one who gets a ton of xp so it's it's a tough relenting awesome system i think it's fantastic but then again i've been using it since the 80s so yeah and like some spells cast take 9 segments to cast so you're casting on the next turn or next round rather you might Unless you roll a 1, in which case you're on segment 10 at the end of that round. And some take a full round to cast. So if you roll a 6 and you're taking action on segment 6, it isn't until the next round, segment 6, that the spell is cast. So keeping and track some of spells, what, you're, what yep. you're planning out to do, kind of making right. sure that you understand that what you're doing won't take effect until the next round. So you have to be very tactical about when you're casting. That's why... Being a mage is so powerful, yet it's the most involved class. It's the most difficult class to play. And in other versions of D&D, it's a lot harder to play, or it's a lot easier, rather, to play a mage than it is to play. You still had to consider that to some extent, but most spells will only take the same round. You'll almost always cast in the same round. So, Yeah, so a little-known rule of AD&D, you never, ever cast spells in combat because you just die. You cast spells before combat um, or as you're entering combat, ideally. So your fireball is probably not going to get off if people are shooting you with arrows. Unless you've got some kind of defensive spell, but then again, you've cast that before combat. Because you're not getting your defensive spell off if people are shooting arrows at you. So it's, yeah, it's tricky. Very tricky. But anyway. Thank you very much for that explanation of uh, 1E combat. That was very... That, that helped clear up a lot of uh, questions I had about it, too. I still feel like segments might be a little bit difficult to keep track of, but if you have the right tool, that wouldn't be too bad. I well, think, see- of, think of, a, of a series of 10 boxes, and there's two rows. So you've got a table with two columns, and there's 10 rows per column, giving you 20 boxes. So if you have E for enemy and P for party, you roll a 3 for the enemy, you put the enemy on 3, you roll a four for the party, put the P on four, and right there you've got the one minute broken down. Now any actions taken by a character or the enemy are going to add plus or minus to that. That's their starting point. So if you visualize it that way, it becomes a little easier to break it down. But. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I can see what you mean about 1E being a lot more tactical. I, I know it was the game was originally supposed to be more of a combat simulator, and which has been adapted throughout the years, so that is very cool. I do feel like it, once you get uh, really comfortable with all of the different actions you can take and what they mean and for initiative and the like, I can see why that could be a lot of fun if you're a player who's looking for something that is more, uh, if you're going to be doing like really intricate focused combat. Yeah, and just, a, just an example in our current campaign, Udo is the weakest character in the group by far. He's the lowest level, he's a gnome, he's not very strong, and yet he's highly effective because he almost always moves first because of a really high dexterity. So that's a tremendous advantage. There's a whole bunch, we can have a whole two-hour talk about tactics and strategy for D&D combat, but, but we'd, we'd have nobody listening to it. And, uh, <laughs> yes. So, well, I want to thank, thank, thank Hal for, for joining us and being our guest. One, thank you for listening to the podcast. You're probably the only one, but that's great. I don't care. We're just doing it for fun. Um, and we hope you keep enjoying it.
Yes, well, I very much appreciate the podcast. It's been extremely interesting to listen to. I love all of the characters. I love your setting and how you've been playing it so far. So thank you very much for putting it out there and also letting me join you guys tonight. Thank you for joining us. This has been the World of Cough Players podcast, where we discuss old-school role-playing from a player's perspective. Thank you, Hell the Daedra, for joining us for this session. And remember, always cast Magic Missile, as Kanyak says. Yep. <laughs>